0: Welcome to A Pint with Shawnee B. Uh, we're here in London tonight. Um, this is one of the only podcasts, I think, where we have been true to the idea of having alcohol involved. I'm here with a very good friend of mine, Simon Carberry, and we've just come from a hotel in Knightsbridge that is famous for a cocktail called the Vespa, uh, which is almost Pangalactic gargle blaster-esque, for those of you that are Douglas Adams fans. Pan-Galactic guard Blaster was a cocktail from the Hitchhiker's Guide series, which apparently was uh, akin to having your brains bashed in by a lemon wrapped around a gold brick. So we had two Vespas and now we were doing the podcast, so hopefully it'll be a more entertaining podcast than the usual pints with Shawnee B., I'm going to welcome a guy who I've known for close to 15 years, a very creative man, a man who's got a point of view and ideas, and he has, I'm sure, a lot of wisdom to share with us this evening. So welcome, Simon Carberry.
1: Hello, Sean.
0: Also a bit Irish, despite that very English accent you have. (laughs) Yes?
1: That's right. (laughs) You, are, you, have, you have some family from Ireland, do you? I do have half my family on the, my, my father's side. Actually, no, all of my, all my father's family on, uh, well, were Irish. From where? Cork, mostly. Yeah, so there's Carbery, Cork and Isles. Tipperary. Yeah. I
0: keep saying this on these podcasts, but a lot of the times I meet my good friends and I don't know much about their early lives. What's the story behind where you came from?
1: Well, the reason for that, Sean, is that you never listen. You just talk and talk and talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, um... but that's why I'm trying. To, I'm trying to
0: help my. I'm trying to fix myself by having these podcasts where I interview and hopefully listen to what you have I to just say. Carry on, then. No, but what
1: I like. So, where where were you brought up? Where, where... I was brought up mostly in Chislehurst in Kent, which is uh, the heart of uh, the stockbroker belt. At least it was, and I was brought up there in the 19s, in the nineteen sixties and seventies. And uh, I went to school in Dulwich, and I uh, went. Uh, I commuted on the train every day, just like a real stockbroker, like a real 12-year-old stockbroker, uh, with a mini with a mini hat and a mini-fold umbrella. And a Were mini your copy parents of the Daily Mail. creative people? Or? My parents weren't able to be creative people, actually, because they came from that post-war thing of really not having any choice. My what father, did they do? My father fell out of school into the stock exchange and became very adept, adept at... Uh, sort of doing financial stuff, and he got very interested in that because he was quite bright, mathematically bright. Um, and your mum? My mum's still around, and she was, uh, she was just a housewife. She got married at 19 and had me when she was 21, still rocking and rolling. Um, so, yeah, very unexceptional. But you, I mean, where does your, you're one of the brightest
0: friends I know. Where does all your grey matter come from, those two? Or school, or what?
1: Uh, well, I didn't go to university. Mainly because I didn't try and pass my A levels very hard, um, but that was kind of a very common thing uh, in my generation. It, it wasn't. It, it seems remarkable now, but it's it wasn't very remarkable then. Often. But you, I mean, you're 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 well read. Are you well read? I mean, yeah. I mean, I was good at English at school, right. um, and I've always wanted to write. So, what see, was your first ever job when you left school? Like, I worked for the civil service. Oh. I was in a, I was a civil servant for about oh god, I can't remember now. I must have been about a year doing what? Oh, working in the Ministry of, I think it was the Department of Transport actually, Department of the Environment. I had a lot of friends who worked in the civil service, civil service at the time. One of whom is. Uh, did very well in advertising, and one of whom ended up as Robert Plant's drummer, and is right. still a good friend of mine, Chris Blackwell. And all three of us worked in either in government or local government. And in the days before email, we used to send each other ridiculous joke stuff around in the internal mail just to keep ourselves amused, because of course being civil so, well, servants, servants, we had absolutely nothing to do. Yeah. And and is, did
0: the civil service job scare you straight? Like, did you? Did is is you said there's got to be something
1: that I can do that's better than this? Oh God, yeah. My first advertising job it was, was, actually, Y&R. was at, was at y yeah. They had a, tra- a graduate trainee program, and I was neither a graduate... Uh, <laughs> nor, a train- nor a trainee. Nor a trainee. But nevertheless, they spoke to me, and they gave me this thing called a copy test, and they used to have copy tests. Okay. And it was a, a sort of a mixture of an ability to write and sort of lateral thinking. And I did this copy test, and apparently I passed it with flying colors, although no one's ever shown me any kind right. of data on this. But anyway, there were two... There were two jobs out of, you know, like 400 applicants or something that year, and I got one of the two creative jobs, the two creative jobs, that is. That seemed like a good idea for a few weeks and a couple of months, and I got on quite well, and um, <laughs> I got kind of bored with that, and I went to see Dave Trott.
0: Dave Trott is a very famous advertising
1: copywriter. And creative director, and, creative and director. guru. And guru, yeah. Dave was amazing. He he looked at my my stuff, and he said... It's all very professional, but it's not got any ideas in it. In so, it, <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> so I, I said, okay. And he sort of talked me through this, and he basically he turned me into a proper advertising writer in the space of about six weeks. He what he said to me was, he said, he said, I don't believe in talent. I believe in energy. And I thought well, that's that's was plenty of that. I thought, well, that's actually a little bit um, worrying because I've got no energy and tons of talent. <laughs> but anyway, notwithstanding that, I went away and, and humility. And, uh, yeah, no, no, and humility. And I went away and uh, he, he said, look, I want, I want to see proof of your energy. I want to see lots of stuff. So go away and, and do um, 10 campaigns with 100 ads in each and come back this time next week or something like that. So I did. And he was, I think he was impressed by the fact that I actually tried. Yeah. Actually. It was all shit. What but
0: at no point in your previous schooling English... Civil service, like you weren't the guy who was going, oh, I want to get into advertising. You I mean, no. just kind of arrived at your.
1: No. Yeah. Most people I know who started off in advertising in the nineteen eighties or seventies, actually, before my in generation, before me, they fell into it. You know, yeah, yeah. they fell into it in the in lieu of, a, of any direction or real job. But you did have you did mention when we
0: were having a drink earlier, like that, that the caliber of people that were going into the industry is, was a lot better back then.
1: Well, I don't want to be judgmental and say it's a lot better. I'd, say, I'd certainly say it was very high uh, in those days. I mean, you know, you look at the people who were going into the business though in those days as a means to a, an end. You're talking about David Putnam, Alan Waldey, Alan Parker, uh, Hugh Hudson, um, David Bowie and, and Pete Townsend both worked in advertising, I think, uh, briefly. in Rushdie. Salman Rushdie and, and great Jobs and Faye Weldon. I mean... Some people did it because it was a sort of congenial, sort of semi-creative thing to do, because they Mm. were creative people. Other people did it because it seemed like a good alternative to something like the city. Because it was as well-paid as the city, it was for people who were ambitious, but it was also, it kind of wasn't as dull as the city seemed to be at the time. You know, you had, you know, it's much better looking people and parties, and, you know, you had had offices with atriums in, you know. And And bars. And bars. And, you know, people driving... Porsches and... Porsches and yeah. pink Bentleys to work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my first creative director had a pink Bentley.
0: Wow. Chris Wilkins.
1: So... <laughs> if you're listening, Chris.
0: Yes, if you're listening, Chris. Uh, so did you work in Sachi's with Arden then? Was he there then?
1: Yeah. Well, the reason I got... Another legend in the business. Well, brilliant. super legend, yeah. I'm, and someone for, to, to whom I'm equally grateful as I am to, to Dave. Because Dave phoned me up one day and I was I had, I had no job because I'd walked out of Sarches because I was so bored with it way of y and out because I was so bored with it thank you and I got this phone call uh, at home I had flu and I was feeling really shit I was feeling really dreadful I got this phone call I was slightly hallucinating he said hello it's Dave Trott here please I said I said oh really fuck off I put the phone down <laughs> the phone rang again he said no it's Dave Trott honest and uh, is that Simon Cubbery and I said yeah it is and he said look I've got i photocopied your book. And I sent it to Paul on I think he's got a job, bless him. Um, and I got a job. I got a job at Sarches on the basis of Dave's recommendation because Paul said, "I don't know anything about copywriters." Um, Paul pretended he didn't understand words. And, uh, <laughs> you wrote he a couple he, of books, he, though. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> he interviewed me and he said, uh, "He said Dave Chot says you're good." I said, oh, "All right, okay, that's great, fantastic." And he said, um, I've got a girl in my department, great legs, great legs. <laughs> what do you think about women? I said, fine. He said, she's a girl art director. That was Alex Taylor. who's also um, sort of done very well in the business, uh, Alexandra. And I got a job in his, uh, in his department. The first thing he gave us virtually was, a, a, was, can we please do some stuff for the 1983 Conservative Party election campaign? Right. And the next thing I knew, I was sort of kind of up and running in that that sense. And very exciting. Whatever your your politics. Yeah, yeah. Finding myself being, you know, at parties with... Norman Tebbett. (laughs) Actually, (laughs) I did have dinner with Norman Tebbett. My God. I couldn't even afford a bike. (laughs) You know,
0: I was in Ireland then, but I mean, that was a very formidable government. You I mean there were there were big hitters in there that were scary, you know, I mean not least herself.
1: They were scary. None of them were as scary as Charlie Satchi, though. I, I've never really
0: talked to anybody about that dynamic between Morris and Charles Saatchi. So we're talking about Saatchi and Satchi when it became the biggest agency in the world. Morris and Charles Satchi two London Jewish boys who set it up and changed the world of advertising and then were eventually went public and then got kicked out of their own company. They still run M and C well Morris does, I think, uh, M and C Satchi today. But most people who don't work in advertising missing to this will know and have heard of Saatchi. And Saatchi they're probably the only agency in the world that people have heard about. What was the dynamic like with, you know, Morris and Charles at that time? So because that was at there, that was at the, the zenith of their of power I suppose yeah.
1: well I'd love to be able to show you into that inner sanctum Sean but I was, but I was 14 and a half it was a fucking good question and, you just shot it you just I, cut off the <laughs> knees
0: <laughs> it was it was a great question it was a build up question and it was just like I don't know
1: it was like it, it was I can only tell you from the point of view of someone who was so far down the ladder yeah That. Um, but did you feel leadership god yeah yeah oh absolutely absolutely there was well, the agency was run by, by Charles and Morris, but it was also run very much by Tim Bell. Yeah. What Clever was the atmosphere and, and the
0: day-to-day like?
1: It went from being quite organised to being unbelievably chaotic yeah. um, in the space of three years. And I found that chaos difficult because I didn't like working in chaotic environments. It was very much simplified for us as junior creative people because all we had to do was win awards. We had to, all I had to do was to please Paul. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. If I produced something that was a good idea, he would, try, he would use his influence, his power, and his sheer scariness to try and make that happen. So taking that period of your life, which
0: was your second job, versus, say, jumping forward to today, like where, where do you see the business from those days to these days? Because I think you have a point of view on that.
1: The thing about advertising in those days... Was that it was, it was a bit of the it was the Wild West in, to some extent, and um, there was a lot of money coming in through the doors, and so agencies were essentially being bankrolled, um, and all they had to do was by take, media, yeah, by media, and all they had yeah. to do was take commission. I remember um, whenever it happened, I think must have been twenty five years ago when the media depart media department started becoming independent media agencies. Mm. And at that moment, the rot set in in terms of advertising having a business model. <laughs> the trouble with with losing your business model is that you start to find altern- try and find alternatives which don't necessarily work. The commission model worked um, the fee model doesn't because advertising clients have had never and, and still have never got used to the idea of paying paying for value for ideas. Mm. Essentially, agencies are no longer being, being paid proper money for what they do when they mm. do it well. What happened as a result is that less good people are attracted into advertising, less good people are attracted into the marketing departments of, 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 agents, of, of clients because um, they've moved so far down the pecking order uh, in terms of the board mm. of a, any client company. And um, it's gone from being a Premier League occupation uh, in, in all sides to becoming perhaps, you know, a Division Two occupation in that sense, which is a terribly sad thing because there are some very good people working in this mm, business. Right, yeah. And a great communications idea, a great communications campaign can transform any brand. Mm. It can turn a brand and make it from, go from zero to hero. Yeah. But it's very difficult now to find anybody who has, the, who has the vision to enable that to happen. What happened when you when
0: you um, left Saatchi? What, what was the reason you left and where did you go?
1: I left Saatchi because I felt it was getting too chaotic for the way I like to work. Right. And um, What I still believe works best for many people as creatives and still isn't an option that's offered to many, which is to go and work in your own space, be given a brief, be, uh, be given a coherent brief, be given a... Um, a space to work in, a space of time, and a space of quiet. your own. And peace and quiet. Yeah. I do not like working in open plan no, offices. I'm hearing
0: this is all going to change again. It's yeah. going to go back because it's just not, it's just not working. Yeah.
1: Should we talk about peace and quiet? Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Well, you know, I work in, I go into advertising agencies all the time still, and I still and I find myself working in, in open plan offices. And... Um, it's impossible for me to work in an open plan office mm. uh, to do ideas and to write you know it's not because I'm antisocial it's not because I don't like listening yeah. to everyone else not because else's
0: you're not a team player
1: no, no not at all I, I love I love rock and roll I mean rock and roll is part of my life and making music is part of my life I like making noise yeah. honest at the right time yeah but it's uh, it's horses for courses I, I don't really like being surrounded by everyone else's music when I'm trying to work yeah Um, so I say to them, okay, fine, I I can work in my place, but people want me to work in their place. If that's what they're paying me to do, I go, okay, I shrug my shoulders and I go and do it. But I I think it's a crazy thing to do. And When I see so many people um, trying to get onto a tube train in London and trying to get off one again at 6 o'clock in the evening, like I did this evening, I think to myself, why are we doing this Uh, as a society? How is this helping us? How is it making us more creative? I don't think it
0: is. There's a whole backlash with Yahoo and places like this where it's like, oh, no, no more working from home. Everyone come into the office and the water cooler moment. And and coupled with the Google Plexes and whatever the hell Apple are building, this Death Star. You know, I don't, I don't really understand why we went down this road, other than for possible financial savings.
1: <laughs> <laughs> other than in a category well, if we had everybody on a long that, desk. You may have hit the nail on the head yeah, there, so might have What you don't need is you don't need an artificial clock-watching post-industrial revolution yes. um, working shtick. I think you've got to imbue people with trust. If you don't think they're worthy of trust, if you don't think they have talent, if you think they're lazy, don't employ them. Yeah.
0: Was the freelance decision partly made to allow you to explore your other creative avenues, your music, your writing?
1: Yeah, it was. Well, I, I felt very trapped in a full-time job. Quite often one does things in life that you do at the time and you don't know why you did them until years later. And I think it was certainly true in my case. I'm, I don't think I was particularly mature. I didn't have much guidance, really. I was mm-hmm. making it up as I went along. After I'd been freelancing a while, I found that A, I worked better at doing my advertising work in that way why? The freedom, to, the freedom to work how I want to work excuse me where I want to work and I find that I don't want to I don't find I need to do it 10 hours a day yeah. I don't need to, to, to go through this sort of joke thing that I've experienced once or twice of, being, of having to work for 20 hours non-stop mm. in a warehouse mm. with a bunch of other people um, in order to produce anything it's bollocks. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and I feel not very, your
0: circus, not your monkeys. You get hired from, from a certain yeah, time. Abso-
1: absolutely. I mean, just give me, a, give me a job, pay me a fee, and yeah. I'll come back with it. If I don't come back with it, you, then you can kick my ass. Yeah. <laughs> that's that. And I should be able to also do other things in my life, which I do try and do. And uh, the other things in my life are very important. There's the writing, which I, I postponed for far too long, the other sort of writing beyond advertising, and the music as well, which I uh, also did put aside for too long and i'm thankfully now um, comfortably back to doing i enjoyed so it. you have a band you had a
0: band called the air Hilaires. a i r h <laughs> i l l a i r s but also air Hilaire. <laughs> uh, or you say it probably better cuz
1: you the a- air Hilaires, yes. named after terry thomas going oh, hello yes and then there's there's a new <laughs> th-
0: wood nymph or something what's it called oh, sorry <laughs>
1: I've got another band called the Wood Demons which enables which enables me and various other people who've got a lot of experience doing music in other fields to uh, to actually write our own highly pretentious stuff uh, which no one wants to listen to apart from us which which is cool But the wood wood demons are are, are, you. You gig quite a lot, like. Yeah, we gig quite a lot, but we don't gig all that much because uh, you know, gigging is not really uh, what you do unless you're either twenty-two. Or you two. uh, Or or you two exactly. Um, (laughs) Anybody in between, forget it. Um, Now what we do is we we make recordings and. um, And
0: what do you? Are you the lead singer?
1: I I do most of the singing, but not all of it. Um, And I play guitar, but not by any means all of it. And I write about um, somewhere around a third of the material. And what's your angst? What do you mean the musical style? Yeah. I write songs about things that I couldn't possibly write about otherwise. Right. Um, like. <laughs> I've written songs about someone being in a space station watching the earth explode. Oh. Uh, which was kind of written in the I'm going to get really heavy here. <laughs> it's kind of written in the in the lee of my father's death, oh. uh, which I did, like most things. You know, you don't realize why you've done things until afterwards, right? That's kind of about that, in a funny sort of way. And I write other songs about all sorts of other things. Some of them are some of them about serious topics, and some of them are about you know nothing very much. And it's about making nice noises in the end. I you know I I've always liked music, alternative music, and uh, yeah. And then the writing, the writing. Yeah, like many people um, who've, who've toyed with writing and who have some ability to do it, um, I struggle with two things. One of them is actually writing anything.: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because everyone has that problem, which sounds like a facile thing to say, but you, you, actually writing is about finishing, I and do. then it's about rewriting. I agree, and rewriting again, and that's why I'm not it. sending
0: it out until it's in reasonable
1: shape. Well. Yeah, reasonable shape is a very difficult call, but yeah, that's broadly true. And I suppose the other thing about it is finding out what it is that you actually want to write. And I it took me a long time to work out that actually I want to write for children. Yeah. And I want to write what I do for children and so I'm I'm writing silly. It's funny we're silly both stuff. not
0: we're both childless.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Angst ridden. Over forty males who have no real interest in having children. But I read, have written a couple of things for kids as well. I like mm. I read somewhere that actually the best people to write for kids are those that don't have them because you then treat the child like almost a mini adult, and you kind of and the kid re- I don't know, reckons or sees that.
1: I don't know, maybe I, I, don't, I, really don't know. I, I, I at the moment, I, I'm writing, I'm writing a story uh, which is in verse. Actually, it's sort of like a Doctor Seussy type thing. And uh, I finished, a, finished a, just a silly, scatological story for very young children, for, for seven-year-olds. And I've, the, the, the biggest thing I've written recently is uh, my story, The Morphant, under my, my writing name of Cornelius Fuel. And The, story, the Morphant is, uh, is, about, is an adventure story. It's a 200-page adventure story for children. It's on Kindle and iBooks, and uh, unfortunately not on 3D books yet. Real books. How's that um, worked?
0: putting stuff out on Kindle and on e-books is that, do you make money or is it
1: difficult or what What's well, a bit like making, ro- making rock music these days mm. no it's not it's all commoditized by um, the big players like Apple or Amazon and it's very 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 difficult but that's fair enough you know yeah. it's up to me to make the books good enough um, and the music good enough too actually and it's up to me to find ways of making sure that we get an audience That's no one else's problem but mine um, do you regret not having children <laughs> Actually, I do regret not having children, um, if we're going to get into this deep personal thing. I have a partner um, who has her own children, and it would have been lovely for us to have had children together, but that's not going to happen, and, you know, that's, uh, that's the way it goes. You know, I, I had a, not having children has many advantages too. I was able to travel a lot. Mm. Um, I was able to do lots of things that really would have been... Close to impossible, had I had children. Um, I don't mean that from a selfish point of view, no. but you know, I'm trying to find a, you know, a positive to that. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, oh, there are plenty of them. Oh, yeah. Um, the, what other regrets would you have had looking back?
1: Oh, I should have gone to university. I mean, not, not because it necessarily would have changed anything, although it, well, it actually would have changed everything, probably. Because Tell me how that would have happened. Why would it have changed everything? Uh, I probably would have had a completely different sort of career. Um, One thing about... One thing about the British educational system is if you do go to Oxbridge, which I suppose I mean, the plan was that I went to Oxford to study law, and I'm not saying for a second I should have studied law, actually.
0: You'd be a pretty good barrister or something, I can see it.
1: Well, actually, I always thought I'd be a pretty good barrister until I had a barrister represent me in a long, um, in a long divorce case. <laughs> and I realised that his job is really bad. That guy is good! He's, he's, no, he's actually boring. Oh, he was terrible, right? No, no, he was very good, but it's yeah. actually very boring. Oh, okay, it's not like Rumpel. It's not you always know. OJ no. Simpson. You know? No, there's the advocacy part of standing up in court. I put it to you, my lord. There's <laughs> nothing like that. Greatest speech
0: I ever saw. Greatest speech was Johnny Cochran's sum up speech when after that OJ. mental trial oh, yeah, went that was on good. all summer, and he comes in his blue suit, and what's her name, Marcia Clark, <laughs> was the was the hagger headed, bags under the eyes, stuttering with a folder. <laughs> three times the size of her head and Johnny Cochran arrives in his blue suit and all he has is a glove in his pocket (laughs) he has no notes and he talks for an hour and as soon as I saw it I was like clearly not guilty
1: (laughs) well that's our job isn't
0: it yeah when you talk about regrets and not doing law but I am not going to college. It just feels a little bit flimsy to quote a word of the evening. Just, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that word's got you know, I, can get the, kids, I can get the exactly. <laughs> I can get the kids thing um, a bit, uh, not personally, but, but I, yeah. I,
1: I regret the lack, I, I regret any experience um, that might have been good that I haven't had, and that was just one of those. Yeah. I mean, I'm not certainly not complaining. I've had a very interesting, a very interesting time.
0: So yeah, so there's the, the there's the advertising, the freelance, there's the music, there's the writing. Anything else you're working on?
1: Yeah, um, I've um, I'm I'm really honoured to be, a, a, be invited to be one of the three co-founders of a of a of an app. App actually doesn't really cover it. It's it's a, it's an idea for preventing people with long-term conditions uh, forgetting to take their medication. Um, people with diabetes for example, uh, costs the UK £10 billion a year uh, because they forget to take their medication and they have terrible problems as a result. And and There are 30 million people in this country who are indirectly affected by long-term conditions. That's just the UK, 15 people with a a condition such as asthma or epilepsy or diabetes and at least one other carer, Mm. friend, family, teacher, whoever. So is this
0: like a phone app or something? Yeah,
1: Uh, it's a phone app. Uh, We've created the brand, it's called Elfie. E L F Y, Elfy is a long-term condition uh, brand which which has apps in it for uh, to remind people to take their medications for at the moment for asthma on the iOS platform. Um, so that's a very important stream of what I do. It might become a uh, it might become a viable vi- business, or it might become um, something that's just essentially a charity. Um, but it's an important thing to do, I think. Cool. And very different from the other things I do. Um, what would you say
0: to your uh, nipper self, apart from maybe go to college, but what would you say to your younger self? Or indeed somebody who was, you know, if you were the Dave Trot and someone was coming to you, what would you say to somebody now today who would be 20, 19, 18,
1: what, going into advertising, well, or
0: you know, living life, anything, life lessons, or advertising. Uh, lessons. Well, I would Career go. Lessons.
1: I would go down the same. I would go down the same territory as Danny Kay. Uh, you know, he said, <laughs> "Of course, uh, <laughs> brilliant." <laughs> which is going to perform as Tom Thumb? No, <laughs> um, the one without
0: the parsnips, the one without the poison.
1: Danny Kaye, of all people, and look him up because he had a much more interesting life than many people. Think. I know Danny.
0: Danny Kay was my father was very into Danny Kay. I know. Oh.
1: I mean, he was obviously he was a, a song and dance man, yes. and he was an actor, and, and and all the rest of it. But he was also he also trained as an airline pilot, to fly for Pan Am, and he also became he became the head of some international organisation. I can't remember the name of. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm no expert on Danny Kaye. I'm just using him as an example because he said uh, life is a broad tapestry. And you should throw as much paint at it as possible. Yeah. And I kind of think that's the case. We live in a world where. You're expected to be very, very, very brilliant at one thing, um, and if you're even remotely engaged with anything else, you're not taken seriously. That's something that we've lost in the last 500 years. Michelangelo could do more than more than, than make a sculpture of David. Yeah. So could Leonardo da Vinci. Yeah. Um, Walter Raleigh was a, mm. was a poet as well as an adventurer. Mm. There's absolutely no reason at all why you should go through your life, Mr. 18-year-old, thinking all you can do is one thing. Yeah. That's bollocks. Yeah. You can do whatever you want to do and whatever you're good at and whatever you feel passionate about, and I would say go for that.
0: And what about the what about the state of the world in your point, in your view? I mean, you know, it's 2016 now. We've had a rough 2015. What what what, what are you optimistic or pessimistic about where we're at? Technology, like, mm. terrorism. Whoever is <laughs> going to be elected American president this year.
1: You should be asking Pope Francis this, not me. <laughs> well, I'm asking you. Well. I can kind of hear
0: Pope Francis' answer and it's just going to tire me. He's a, he's a good
1: geezer, actually. He is a good geezer. And I'm not, I'm not religious. It'll be vague. Although we're both the, Catholics. It'll nominal. be vague about prayer. Yeah, right. Fair enough. <clears throat> um... I'm. I, I'm, not, I'm actually an optimist by nature. I'm not. I, I'm an optimist masquerading as a masquerading as a pessimist, really, by nature. And I'm very. I'm very hopeful for the future. But I think. Um, I think we have an awful lot of challenges, in our world. I think we've got some very major challenges, in the next hundred years. And uh, uh, thankfully, I won't be around to have to deal with them. And thankfully, I don't have children that, uh, I have to worry about. We have a, a global overpopulation issue. Um, I think we have a, an issue of everyone living too fast and not actually sitting down and thinking about mm. the important things about what makes us people uh, issue. Mm. I think we have a problem with the climate. Mm. Um, I think we don't think creatively enough about how we can change the climate and make that an economically viable thing to do. Um, I think we think too small. I think our politicians think too small and I think they think too short-term. I think we're all too self-serving, but that's that's all of us, isn't it? As a yeah. as a species, so that sounds probably very depressing and negative. But uh, these are the challenges um, that we I hope can rise to. Simon,
0: always a pleasure to be in your company, as you know. I think you do know that I that. But uh, Simon Carberry, thank you very much for being on a point with Tony B and uh, I'll catch you next time. Thank you very much. Au revoir.